Thank you, worship team. I love that lyric. May the gift of God amaze us still. You know, with... Almost, buddy. Just wait here. You know, um, seasonally, every year, we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's really easy for that to become old hat, isn't it? It's easy just, just to just become routine. But may the fact that God sent His Son, that God put on flesh, may that fact still capture us and amaze us still. And I hope that's true for you and for me during this Christmas season. If we've not met, I am Nathan Brand. I'm the, I have the privilege to be the senior pastor here. And we are going to dismiss Children for Children's Church. And that's ages 4 through 1st grade. So looks like Oliver did an end around on me and didn't decide. But if you want to do that, you can head out this north door. And uh, 30 kids left, unless they've all left me. And that made, in that case, let's get on with the sermon today. So we've been going through the, uh, the letter to the Corinthians. Excuse me, <laughs> to the Philippians. I knew it was one of those, uh, one of those cities. But I'm going to start in the Old Testament today. And there's a statement out of the book of Proverbs. Very practical wisdom. Do not eat the bread, this is Proverbs 23, 6 and 7. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man, literally a man who has an evil eye, could be translated as stingy man, or desire his delicacies. Now listen to this. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. And he says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. Now I call attention to, to this proverb, not to warn you about stingy hosts during this Christmas season, but rather to put forth the principle of this passage. As a man, as a woman thinks within themselves, so he or she is. In this case, you know, you've got a person who's offering a, a lush banquet, if you will, but you could tell inside he's inwardly. It's grinding on that person, right? And they're doing it either to appear generous or they're doing it because they want something from you, a, a future quid pro quo. But, you know, inside, it's gnawing on them. They're counting the cost. That is what they're thinking. As he thinks within himself, so he is. And that's where I'm driving at today. What we think about, what we meditate on, what we dwell upon has a great impact on our attitudes. How we think about others, how we think about ourselves, how we think about even our own circumstances. And eventually they will translate into action or inaction. And as you think, so it's going to manifest itself somewhere down the line. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to a dear congregation of his. A group that most likely is experiencing um, 
persecution from the culture around them. And he also knows that they have concern for him because his future is uncertain as he waits in prison to find out what's going to happen to him. Will he live? Will he die? Will he be, continue to be in prison? Will he be released? But he wants to train what they're thinking. He wants to help them get in the right headspace as well as ours. Because he knows that as a one think as one thinks within themselves, so they are. So if you have your Bibles, you can crack it open to uh, Philippians 4, we'll be in verses 8 through 9 today. But before we dig in, let me pray for us. So Lord, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful also for this season, where we remember the amazing reality that you, Lord Jesus, put on flesh the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. You put on flesh, and you came and you dwelt among us. We thank you for that. We thank you for your word that it's for our good. So may it hit its target today. May it have its effect on our hearts. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. First thing I wanted to point to is to dwell on the virtuous character of something, even if they are earthly things. Even if they are earthly things. Paul had drilled down deeply into this beloved congregation that Christ is central to the Christian life. He is their life, if you will. Paul would say, in this letter, to live as Christ, to die as gain. That he counted everything lost to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That he wanted to be like him. And is something going on? Okay. <laughs> that he wanted to be like him in his uh, life, death, and resurrection. That our citizenship is in heaven, not in Rome, and from which we await a Savior who's going to come and transform our lowly bodies to his glorious body. One who we can rejoice in always. We need not be anxious, but to approach him with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make known our requests, knowing that the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so that's very Christ-centered, Christocentric. Yeah, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Absolutely. That's what Paul was trying to communicate. But the Philippians still lived in this world. You and I still live in this world. And the image of God is not completely removed, not completely destroyed. 
there are some things that we can focus on that are in alignment, that are in alignment with God's kingdom, that are in alignment with the heart and mind of Christ. And so Paul puts forth in verse 8 these eight attributes of things we should think of. Now culturally, it seems that Paul could have borrowed from some Greek philosophers or Stoics to generate this list. But in Christ they have greater value and greater virtue. And that's what he's pointing to. Greater meaning in Christ. And as we approach this, you know, it's, it's a familiar passage. We could just read it over and go, that's really nice, let's keep going. But the heart of it says, at the very end, think about these things. Slow down. Take them in. Digest them. Mull them over. And the truth of the matter is, in our world today, we receive thousands, if not millions, of messages, don't we? Whether it's from our media, whether we want them or not, whether it's from um, you know, culture, they come our way each day. Never had more input than that. And we need to know what to take in and what to shut out. And so Paul's giving us a filter, if you will, of what to dwell on, what to contemplate, what to mull around in our heads and minds, and what not to. And so the first virtue he points to, toward is whatever is true. Whatever is true. And this is pointing towards veracity, reality, accuracy. It's the opposite of what is false, what is deceptive, what is a lie. Indeed, wasn't that the first debate? Wasn't that the first temptation? Did God really say that? Truth is foundational to Christianity and what we think about. And I think that's why Paul starts here. You know, the Gospels don't start out with once upon a time. It's not a fairy tale. In fact, Luke is very specific. During the time of Augustus, during the governorship of Quirinius, it's very specific. He's talking about the fact that God enters history and that he actually put on flesh. He actually lived this life. He actually went to the cross. He actually was in the tomb for three days. And he actually rose from the dead. And that Peter saw him. And Mary saw him. And the twelve saw him. And five hundred witnesses saw him. It is anchored in the truth. And Paul himself says, if this is not true, if Christ is not risen, then we are the most people to be pitied. It is anchored in the truth. If this is not true, then Christianity is false and should be rejected. But if it is true, then we should take very seriously our relationship to Jesus Christ and His claims and His claim on our life and the faith He calls us to put in Him. In fact, Jesus Himself will say that I am the way, 
And I am the truth. And I am the life. No one's coming to the Father except through me. So the truth has to do with facts. Yes, Jesus actually did come. He actually did live, although there are a lot of deniers out there, which is sad. But I think that's just irrational. I don't want to believe in Jesus because I don't want to believe in the implications that it has upon my life, if that is true. But it also has to do with a standard. Ultimately, who is the source of all truth? Because God is that source. His word is the source. It verifies the veracity of truth. And we live in a culture that has degraded the truth for so long. And now truth is just relative. What you feel is true for you. Or what I feel is true for me. And it's degraded to the point where we have no sense of objectivity. Sadly, it expands to gender and sexuality. It's not binary, but it's fluid. And sex itself is not exclusive to marriage between one man and one woman. It's recreational. And it is sad. But if we listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he told a group in Mark chapter 10, verses 6-9, at the beginning of God's creation, God made them man, male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And here's what I want to say in all kindness to you. If there's somebody in this room who's struggling with this issue, or you, you're close to somebody who's struggling with this issue, I'm not here to condemn you. That's not my point. That's not what I'm driving at today. But when we talk about truth, God is the arbiter, not us, not our feelings, not what I think, what you think, what God thinks and what God has said. That's the point. But here's the thing also I want you to know, that all truth is God's truth. And God has left little clues and culture to point to him. Here's a great example. If you've read through the book of Acts, as you get to chapter 17, you see that the Apostle Paul is stuck in Athens waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas to come meet him down there. And he's walking around and he's seeing all these idols. And he is disturbed within his, his spirit. And because Paul just naturally has to talk about Jesus, he just naturally needs to get that out, he goes into the marketplace. And he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that you're, you're very religious. I see all of your, you know, your idols, and I've even seen a, an, a, a shrine to an unknown God. Well, what you don't know, I, I'm here to make known. I'm here to make known. And this is what he says. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the earth, And then he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, 
though He's not far from any of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And as some as your poets, your own poets have said, we are His offspring. They were somehow a witness still in that pagan culture. And Paul is looking to engage a crowd that has no idea what the Old Testament says. Pointing to their poets that have somehow God has left a clue of who he is to enter into a conversation about Jesus. And connecting with people in our culture sometimes maybe is pointing to common truths that we all share. Whether it's relational, whether it's just marveling at the creation of how God has made things. I mean, if you take a biology class, you have to say, this is pretty amazing how God has put this together. To say it was all random, I think, takes a lot of faith there. So let's talk about the possibilities of how this all came to be. Or just the fact that each one of us has a sense of right and wrong. It may be a little skewed, it may be twisted, but where did that sense come from? I know that's a more existential question. But where did that come from? Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. But who is the arbiter of what is right and wrong? Is it true? Is the first question we need to ask when we think about things we want to be thinking about. Mulling in our mind. Number two. This will go a lot quicker because I've got seven more things and Truth is a foundation. Trust me, it'll move. It'll move here, okay? Whatever is noble, that is what is revered, majestic, honorable. Someone who operates with class and dignity and does not stoop to the tawdry, petty, self-serving actions of others, even when they're the one who's being targeted by others. If you know anything about me, you know I'm a kind of a history nerd. I especially love the period of the Civil War. And I'm going through Ron Chernell's uh, biography on Grant right now. Actually, I'm listening to it, because I can listen faster than I can read. But here's what I'm impressed with, with Ulysses S. Grant. Is that during the Civil War, as different generals were put in charge of the Army of the Potomac, of the Army of the Union. Each one of them failed, oftentimes because oftentimes they were either too full-blown with their ego or because they had no confidence at all. And when Grant finally moves from the West to the East and is put in charge of the whole Army of the Union, he gets slandered, he gets maligned, he had some problems with alcohol, and that... They just took that to the bank because it was so political. Those men were so often about themselves rather than the cause of the union. But here's the thing about Grant that is so unusual. He was not vindictive. In fact, he took some of his rivals, if you will, and used them for the cause of the union. And he didn't let their pettiness sidetrack him. He was a noble individual. He's a noble general. So we can learn a lot about leadership from Ulysses S. Grant. And by the way, that was not his original name. It was actually Hiram. But that's another story for another time. His humble leadership is worth thinking on. Something to consider.
Whatever is right, that is talking about what is just, what is fair, what is upright. And again, God is the standard. Now here's, here's the rub with this. When you start considering that God is the standard, and then you start talking about what is fair and what is not fair, then we might be humbled to find out that we actually get a lot more grace than we deserve. If God was exactly fair with how he treated us and how we behaved, we would probably be obliterated. But he is gracious. He is gracious and kind. And ultimately, this is about doing what is right, equitable, and and using impartiality. Okay, so I don't mean to sound like an American Homer, if you will, but what is interesting is, is I look at the U.S. Constitution, and if it is applied like the Founding Fathers intended, amendments and all, because it, was, it certainly is an imperfect um, document, you're heading in the right way towards being fair and just and upright. Because it's not based on somebody's race or gender or their creed or their nationality. It's based upon, do you want to be a part of this United States? And these are the rights that are given you. And we all start on an equal playing field. Things didn't start out that way, but that's the direction it's heading. And again, I don't want to worship the document, okay? I don't want to worship the document. But if they're implied rightly... It brings about a, about a lot of equity. The problem is, it's not applied rightly so often. We've deviated. Sometimes it's been applied to one group's advantage or another. And the problem is, men and women are involved. And a system is only as good as the people that apply it. But if it was applied as it was written, as it was intended, it would be something that heads us towards something that is fair, something that is equitable, something that is right, something that is just. It's worth thinking about. Whatever is pure, that which is holy or sacred or undefiled, which is becoming more and more rare these days, because we're a society that doesn't like to say no to self. We're a society that likes to throw off restraint. Again, as I mentioned earlier, sex has become recreational than exclusive to the, the bonds of marriage. We want to make our desires the thing that drive us. And even in the church sometimes, and, and we're trying to make things so comfortable, we adjust it to ourselves than to the holy God we've come to worship. Sometimes our biggest question is, can I bring coffee into the sanctuary or not? Unfortunately, that has become about us rather than the living God. And I'm, that's, a, that's a straw man, folks, so don't think I'm, I have a major issue with that, okay? But I think we can learn from something from secular society. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, there's an area where you can gather behind a rope as you watch these centuries keep watch over this tomb of a man 
who was physically not be able to be identified as to who that one was specifically. But there's a reverence for the person that he gave his all. And we're going to honor that. We're going to honor that for all men and women who gave their lives. And here's the rule. You can't talk. You can't talk. And if you do, a soldier will say something. Something effective. It has been brought to the attention that you're to be quiet and silent with that kind of a authority. This is holy ground. You can't cross that line. A sense of reverence for a man who gave his all. How much more coming before a holy God and a Christ who gave himself, gave his all. Where's that sense of reverence? I think we've lost it at times. We've tried to make things so user-friendly, we have forgotten that we come before a holy God. Next is whatever is lovely. That is which is lovable, has a friendly disposition. Something you find beauty or goodness in. Something that makes you say, I love that. I love that. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's a particular album. A particular song. I'll tell you, my, during this time, I turn on Handel's Messiah. I love it. It gets my heart and my mind into the Christmas spirit. Maybe you like Beethoven. Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You know how it goes? Henry Van Dyke loved it so much that he turned it into Ode to Joy, which we'll sing a little bit later. Maybe for our younger people, it's the newest Maverick City worship album. Maybe it's a film. Maybe it's a wonderful life. The kind of review that even when things are hard, maybe it's not as bad as we think it is. Maybe it's creation. Going down to Whitewater State Park and wandering through that ravine where God carved out that area. And there's no cell coverage. And you get to look at God's creation or going to the ocean and being overwhelmed by its power and thinking Jesus could speak to it and it would be silent. I don't know what it is, but something that is lovely. Maybe it's individuals. Individuals. You know what I like about Neil Johnson? Sorry, buddy, you're my summary illustration. What I like about Neil Johnson is he is just one of those guys that accepts people, is genuinely interested in them when they approach him. What, you're in the Mario Brothers? That's so cool! And he means it, genuinely. And he looks to find common ground with people. Neil is a lovely person in that regard. You know what I love about Kathy Kuhlman? is that she is this person that invites you into your house and you feel warm and cozy and you feel 
just this sense of acceptance. She has the gift of hospitality. She's a lovely person. You know what I love about John Young? Is that he is a super gifted guy. Super smart. Knows a lot about a lot. And yet he has this servant's heart. So what, what do you need? Yeah, I'll do that. You need me to check in kids at, at youth group? Yeah, I'll do that. You need to come alongside? Yeah, I'll do that. I love that, John. He's a lovely person. You know, dwelling on those lovely things with those lovely persons is good for the soul. Whatever is admirable, those things that are spoken well of or have a good reputation, things or persons that have a a reputation of integrity or faithfulness or reliability, of being trustworthy. You know, there are certain products that I buy because I know that they're trustworthy or reliable or they have a great warranty. So if it messes up, I can send it back and get a new one. I've got a vendor that I use to buy a lot of our sound equipment. And I've been, I've been using this vendor before I came to Berean. And the reason I, I have developed this relationship is because, number one, he offers competitive prices. Number two, he is great if I'm going, hey, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what I'm looking for. Can you recommend some things? And he'll, he'll put them out there. But he'll also tell me the truth about the product. Say, hey, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about this? Well, in all honesty, it's put together like a Fisher-Price toy. I would recommend this. Oh, hey, thank you. I didn't see that. But he's great if I, if I need to have some service or I need to send something back. But I've developed that relationship, and he is reputable. And you know how I found out about it? It's through another sound person who said, I do, work, I do my business with this company with this vendor and it's helpful he had a good reputation it can be individuals that have a good reputation many of you know Joe Kuhlman he is my perpetual elder I only give him a year off every six years but he has a great reputation among us when I ask Joel to do something and he says yes to me I know it's going to get done. When he anticipates things, he sees things, and says, hey, we need to think about this, we need to consider this, I certainly appreciate Joel's vision for that. And the thing about Joel is there's no guile in him. He's, he's friendly, but if you want the truth, he will tell you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. But that he's not trying to be cruel, he's just honest, he's faithful. He's a straight shooter. Joel has a great reputation at Berean Community Church. What are those things? Who are those people that you admire who have a great reputation, who are well spoken of? These are things we should think of. And then Paul goes on to say, if anything is excellent, that is morally excellent, that is virtue, that thing or that person who has integrity, who will not sell out when others are willing to compromise for expedience sake. Church is full of them. I think of Sir Thomas More, who was King Henry VIII's chancellor, 
But when he won, when Henry wanted to divorce Aragon, uh, excuse me, uh, Catherine of Aragon, thank you very much, wanted to divorce her because she wasn't producing male children. It was Henry Moore who, who was. It was Moore who stood up. Thomas Moore stood up and said, "No, this is wrong. This is not right in the eyes of God." He lost his head for it. Jan Hus of the Czech Republic now. Really one of the first martyrs for, the, for Protestantism. He didn't know it. All he was doing was preaching the Bible. All he was doing was preaching salvation by faith alone, the grace alone, and Christ alone. And then the church didn't like it. He was burned at the stake. But he wouldn't recant. And obviously that led to Martin Luther, who stood before the Roman, Holy Roman Empire, which was none of those at the time. And the Protestant Reformation started. Who is the person or the thing that stands for moral excellence, that will not compromise, even if it costs their lives? It does us good to dwell on those who are deeply steeped in principle, deeply steeped in integrity. And then last of all, if anything is praiseworthy, this is someone who has civic virtue, who does good for the community above their own gain. How many of you know who Cincinnatus is? Anybody know who Cincinnatus is? He was a Roman, basically he was a Roman general who retired, went out, became a farmer out in the, in the country, and then Rome was being attacked, and they needed a general to, to fight the attack. And so they called in, this is during the Republic, they called in Cincinnatus to be the head general, and he led all the legions against the, the enemies that were fighting them. And then when it was all said and done, when all the legions were behind him, he released the power and went back to his country, and went back to his country farm. This happened twice in his career. And he didn't seize power when he could have. He could have done a Julius Caesar. That was the difference between Cincinnati and Julius Caesar. He didn't seize power. And by the way, that is why George Washington is oftentimes compared to Cincinnati. When George Washington you know, decided after two terms, two four-year terms, I am done, that was scandalous. What do you mean, George? You're the one who's holding this thing together. Everybody loves you. You could be called your majesty if you wanted. He says, that's exactly the point. I don't want to be called your majesty. I don't want to take advantage of my power. And I want to show, give an example of the peaceful transfer of power. That's where that came from, folks. It was George Washington stepping down. He didn't have to. But he was praiseworthy. He had civic virtue. He sought the good of the country, of the nation. Who is that person? What is that principle that acts for the community and not for their own advancement or advantage? So we've rifled through these eight qualities. 
And it takes discernment. It takes discernment because there's some qualities that are, are worth emulating and there are some that are not. And they may be in the same activity. They may be in the same person. I love sports. I love what it represents. The effort, the commitment to grow. The, the ability to learn to work as a team, to cooperate, to make a goal happen. It is an amazing place to grow in character. You know what I don't like about sports? The ego, the self-aggrandizement, the overvaluing of something that is just a game. And I don't like the obscenity in a a locker room. I don't like those things. So I can't throw out sports completely because I love what it stands for. But that stuff, I have to make a division. I have to make a discernment. So there may be something that you find worth emulating, and you kind of have to have discernment like, this is good, this is the meat I can chew, and the rest is bones you can spit out. And sometimes there are things you kind of go, you know what, I'm swallowing too much. There was a show I was watching, and I'm not going to name it, but I really liked what the show was showing about forgiveness. It was very powerful. But on the other hand, it, it aggrandized all this other sinful stuff. And I'm going, I am, I am, I am swallowing too much here. And to stop watching it. Because it was taking my head and my heart in the wrong direction. And that's the, that's the question we have to ask as we look at things like this. Where does it take your heart? Where does it take your mind? Does it make you fearful or angry? or lustful, or greedy, discontent? Does it introduce crude language into your life? Does it make you more loving? Does it make you generous? Does it make you kind, forgiving? Does it make you want to do your very best to be excellent? Does it make you hopeful? Does it give you joy? Does it give you wonder? But ultimately, here's the question. Does it make you more like Jesus? That's the question we need to ask. We want to grasp onto something and fix on it and mull that around. Does it make me more like Jesus? And there's some things we need to jettison because the answer is no. It takes my heart, takes my life in the wrong direction. And I can't make rules for you with that. That is something you have to wrestle with before God yourself. You know, if we held this list up, of eight qualities, they could easily apply to Jesus, couldn't they? Jesus is indeed true. He is indeed noble. He is indeed just. And all the others. Right? Here's an assignment I'd like to apply to you this Christmas season. I want you to take this list and apply it to Christmas. How do you see these qualities? How? And you'll be surprised. You'd be surprised at what this brings up in just the, that Christmas story. Whatever is noble. Think about Joseph. Joseph, who seems to have been betrayed by Mary, but then he finds out the truth. That what she's carrying is by the Holy Spirit. And he's going to have to bear that disgrace in that society. But isn't he noble? Isn't he noble within that? 
If you want help with that assignment, I've got one. This book called Hidden Christmas by Timothy Keller. I will give it to you for free. Your only agreement with me is you have to read it before this year's end. But if you want to go through that task with the help of this, of this book, I, I highly recommend it. So come see me after the service. Okay. I got through one verse. Here we go to the next one. And I promise it won't be as long. Whatever you have learned, whatever you've received from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Excuse me. In proximity here, Paul harnesses these virtues and beyond to see them being lived out. Being lived out, Paul says, in me. He says, you have, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, these things put into practice. Whether that's a truth revealed, a skill acquired, an attitude adopted, and this is much in line with Jewish rabbi tradition. You did what your rabbi did. You had the attitude that your rabbi had. Well, let's look again real quickly at what, G, at what Paul wanted He wants to know Christ. To be like Him in His resurrection, His sufferings, and His death, and somehow attain to the resurrection again. Counting everything rubbish. That's what He modeled. And He won't back down on a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ alone and not found in the law. Whatever you've seen in me, put into practice. Live in it out. It's not a theory. It's not a debate or just something to kick around. It's something to be lived out. Put it into action. What you really believe, what you've really molded around in your, in your thoughts and minds, put those things into living action. Paul points to himself as the example that's pretty, that's pretty gutsy. But what are those things you've heard, learned, received, seen from other believers that are true, that are noble, that are right, that are pure, that are lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy? And by the way, don't look for perfection. Do not look for perfection. Because everyone has feet of clay. The Apostle Paul was included in that. He said, look, what I want to do, I can't even do. And sometimes when you're looking for perfection and you see a fault, you may miss something that's worth imitating, worth going after, an example that's worth following. So find that and fixate on that rather than the feet of clay that that person has. It's worth imitating. It'll lead, lead to, body, uh, to godly behavior. And the promise here, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you realize that this is the second time that peace is mentioned in these, in these last three verses? Started in verse 7. And the peace of God will, that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And now he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Only this time, peace is not an inner feeling. Peace is a person. It's the living God. 
who is with us, who is present with us through this life's sojourn. Whether you're going through many dangers, toils, and snares, or whether life right now is just bringing you green pastures beside quiet waters, He will be with you, the God of peace, to whom all things must conform in His due time. He will be present with us. And that makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. What you go through, and people who don't believe in Christ go through maybe the exact same thing. It's how you experience, experience that is totally different because of the presence of the God of peace in your life. And that, my friends, is something that is worth thinking about. So, I'm going to pray, and then Bobby and the worship team, you come and close us. So, Lord God, I thank you for this list, how you've slowed us down. And I pray that we will be thoughtful. We'll take these things in. We will mull them around. And that they will cause us to be more connected with you and how our life relates to how you're calling us to live, that it will make us more accessible to the world around us that maybe can't see what a Bible verse has to do with something, but can see something that you've created and left as a witness to lead them to Christ. So Lord, we're grateful for your word. May it have its way in us. And may you make us men and women who are more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.